glorify the name of Jesus. And we thank you for your goodness and your mercy. Father, open our eyes to the truth like we've never seen it or known it before. Let us be settled. Settled in our heart of who we are in Christ. And that he took our infirmities and bore our sicknesses. And with his stripes we are healed. We thank you, Father, for the unction of the Holy Ghost this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Praise the Lord. Well, good morning, everybody. I'm going to start in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10. Paul writing to the church, summing up the things that he said previously in the previous five chapters. He says, finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Now, notice it doesn't say anything about you being strong in yourself. See, when we talk about strength and weakness, most people think feelings. I don't feel strong. I feel so weak. I feel so helpless. Well, he's not talking about feeling. He's talking about accepting the truth of the Word of God as benefiting you and yourself. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. How are we going to do that? Verse 11. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. This word wiles means traveling over. In other words, it's telling us the devil has one and only one road that he travels. And that road that he travels is deception. He tries with everything he can to stir up fear based on circumstances and based on his lies. Well, if we know that this is the only road that he travels and that's the only attack he really has against us or only means of attack he can bring against us, then God's given us a supernatural advantage to be able to shore up that area in our lives so that we not be taken in by his deception and not moved by his fear. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high or heavenly places. Now, folks, deception is the only tool the devil has. Fear is the emotion that he tries to influence us or influence, excuse me, influence our actions by. And it works in every situation because this is the only thing the devil has to use against us. Here where it says we wrestle not against flesh and blood but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in higher heavenly places. Paul's telling us by the Holy Ghost that our fight is a spiritual fight. In other words, our fight is to resist and overcome his deception and his deceptive practices and the fear that he uses to try to enforce them. Everything that the devil tries to make us afraid of in this life, we're in the middle of this lockdown concerning the coronavirus. Everything that the devil has to use against us is to try to make us fearful so that we yield to the things that are not in our best interest. And in this case, it would be to yield to the, the, the virus, the sickness, or the disease. But the sickness and the disease really isn't our fight. Our fight is the fear based on circumstances, based on threats, based on lies. 
that's the only area that we have to resist in. That's the only area that we have to overcome in. If we overcome him in that arena, in the spiritual realm, overcome the fear that he uses to try to paralyze us or to influence our activity against the word of God, if we can defeat him there, let me say it even more simply, if we can defeat fear in our lives, we can defeat anything and everything he has. It's not a matter of how many people have gotten the virus. It's not a matter of how many deaths there have been. It's not a matter of any of those things. Our fight is a spiritual fight, and it's a fight against fear. Wherefore, verse 13, take unto you the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand, stand therefore. Notice there's a preparation to being able to stand. Having done all to stand, then stand. Having your feet or having your loins girt about with truth and having on the breastplate of righteousness. It's interesting to me that the first thing that Paul identifies as our spiritual weaponry or spiritual protection is truth. That's not accidental. Because the thing that the devil, the only thing the devil has to use against us are lies and the fear that those lies generate. So the first and foremost thing he said was have our loins girt about with truth. Having the truth of the word that combats and overcomes the fear associated with the threats that he's making. Your loins girt about with truth. In other words, he's saying we need to know certain things. I've said it before, but I'll say it again. Knowledge is the antidote for fear. And so the Holy Ghost is telling us we don't have anything to fear because God's on our side. He's informing us on how to stand against fear, how to overcome fear, how to conquer fear in your life. Because if you can conquer fear, then you can walk in the blessings of God no matter what's going on around us. So he says, stand therefore, having your loins girt about with truth, no matter what lies we hear around us, and having on the breastplate of righteousness, we need to know that being made righteous by the blood of Jesus provides protection for us. And your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. We need to know, we need to be aware of the reality of the peace of God that's available to us because of the Holy Spirit that dwells within us. Well, if we have our loins girt about with truth and we have on the breastplate of righteousness and we're, our feet are shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace, then that knowledge of what we have from God the supernatural equipment that we have from God will enable us to not be taken in by the same fears and the things that the world is concerned about and the worries of this life. Verse 16, he says, Above all, taking the shield of faith, wherewith you shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked. Well, we know what faith is. We know how faith operates. Faith is believing in your heart and saying with your mouth. But notice that that principle of faith, that truth that we have what we say from our hearts, that truth overcomes every fiery dart of the wicked. In other words, it means every wings of his attack. It doesn't take one principle to work against a certain attack of the devil and then a different principle. It's all the same thing. 
It's all wrestling against principalities and powers and rulers of the darkness of this world and spiritual wickedness in higher heavenly places. It's a spiritual battle. That spiritual battle is based on the truth of God's word. That victory that comes to us and that we realize by taking the shield of faith is the result of knowledge applied. Knowledge of who we are in Christ and what Jesus has done for us and the application of that truth in our lives. It'll quench all the fiery darts of the wicked. There won't be one area of attack that he has available to him but will be completely protected by the shield of faith. Verse 17, it goes further and says, And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. The helmet of salvation, I believe, refers to the renewing of the mind. Folks, the default position is an unrenewed mind. We have to take special care and specific actions. We have to specially determine that we're going to incorporate the truth of God's word into our lives. We're going to have to determine to take the word of God and renew our mind to it so that we think according to what God's word says and not according to the fear that the devil uses in this earth. So taking the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, the sword of the spirit is the word of God. The only offensive weapon in the, in the group that he refers to is the word. Well, how do we use the word? Same way Jesus did when he was tempted of the devil. He said it is written. It's the quoting and the speaking of God's word that brings about the victory and puts the power of God to bear, brings the power of God to bear on whatever situation we face. So we take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the spirit, and watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all saints. In other words, we don't have an earthly fight. We have spiritual weapons that are used, intended for our use. Those spiritual weapons are the truth of who we are in Christ and what Jesus has done for us. And those spiritual weapons are to be used in prayer. We don't have a fight. We don't have a fight with the government. We don't have a fight with the governor. We don't have a fight with the rules and regulations of man. Our fight is against the devil and the, and the fear that he generates by making threats. Now, folks, I want you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 14. We want to look at some examples. I want to give you three examples. The Bible says in the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word is established. So I want to give you three witnesses of how fear, the devil tries to use fear against us to overcome us. I'm going to start in verse 22 of Matthew 14. And straightway Jesus constrained his disciples to get into a ship and to go before him to the other side while he sent the multitudes away. And when he had sent the multitudes away, he went up into a mountain apart to pray. And when the evening was come, he was there alone. But the ship was now in the midst of the sea, tossed with waves, for the wind was contrary. Please notice that it, it speaks to the condition of the wind. It was contrary. It was blowing. It was a headwind. It was blowing straight at them in opposition to their purpose to get across the sea to the other side. And in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went unto them walking on the sea. And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were troubled, saying, It is a spirit. And they cried out for fear. Please notice that. The first thing that came as a result of seeing Jesus performing 
a tremendous miracle, a miracle unknown like, uh, that is not identified anyplace else in Scripture. This is certainly a, a unique situation, a unique miracle. They've never seen anything like this. They've never heard of anything like this. And their first response is to be afraid. Folks, fear is the default position for the world. And if we're going to change the settings of our heart so that it doesn't stay to be the default position for us, it's going to take some work to put the Word of God into our heart and to renew our minds to it. So they cried, saying, It's a spirit, and cried out for fear. But straightway Jesus spake unto them, saying, Be of good cheer, it is I. Be not afraid. And Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it be thou, bid me come to thee on the water. And he said, Come. And when Peter was come down out of the ship, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. But when he saw the wind boisterous, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried, saying, Lord, save me. Now, I want you to realize we read before that the wind was contrary. The whole reason they're having trouble making any ground to get to the other side of the Sea of Galilee is because the wind was contrary. It was in opposition to them. So nothing happened to the wind. It's not that the wind started blowing hard all of a sudden when before it had been calm. But Peter forgot about the wind when he got his attention on Jesus walking on the water. As soon as Jesus identified himself, it's me, don't be afraid. Peter's not worried about the wind anymore. He's not worried about the waves anymore. He has one and only one purpose, and that is, if it's you, Jesus, then have me come to you on the water. Jesus says, fine, come. And so Peter starts walking on the water to go to Jesus. But then something brings his attention back to the wind. Now, I'm, I have to be careful. It'd be real easy to be too hard on Peter for this situation, but I've never walked in the water, so I have to temper my comments here. But as a principle, this is the way the devil always works. He wants to bring your attention back, in Peter's case, back to the condition of the wind. Peter wasn't worried about the wind when Jesus identified himself. He only was interested in experiencing the same thing that Jesus was doing, and Jesus didn't have a problem with that. Peter challenged Jesus to challenge him. And so he said, come. And so Peter starts walking on the water with the wind blowing just as hard as it had been, with the waves just as high as they had been. Peter is walking on the water. Well, it's obvious since he's already participating and experiencing this miracle in a measure at least, then it's obvious that the wind is not the problem. Blowing wind isn't what keeps you from being able to walk on the water. High waves isn't the, aren't the problem. That's not what keeps him from being able to walk on the water. He is walking on the water in the midst of the wind and in the midst of the waves. But he allowed his focus to be distracted. When he saw the wind boisterous, he was afraid and beginning to sink, he cried, saying, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stretched forth his hand and caught him and said unto him, O thou of little faith, wherefore didst thou doubt? Now I want you to realize something, and that is, it doesn't say one word in the previous verses about Peter doubting. But we see the connection between fear and doubt. When Peter saw the wind boisterous, he became afraid. And that fear dominated him. That fear paralyzed him. Now, folks, as long as Peter is doing what Jesus has commanded him to do, he can walk on the water. 
it doesn't say anything. The Bible doesn't say anything ever about us having to feel a certain way to gain victories in faith. Faith is diametrically opposed to your feelings. And so Peter, as afraid as he might have been of the wind and the waves and seeing things up close once he gets away from the ship, if he had continued to come toward Jesus, then there's not a strength or a power in the universe that could have kept him from accomplishing his goal. It was when he allowed the fear to influence his actions. That's when he began to sink. So Jesus grabs him by the hand, lifts him up and says, wherefore did thou doubt? How do we know he doubted? Because he stopped coming toward Jesus. He stopped acting on what Jesus said. Now we know why he stopped acting on what Jesus said. He was afraid because of the circumstances. And folks, that's the way the devil always works. He wants to tell you the smallest things are the biggest things. He wants to try to make you afraid that things that have never happened before are all of a sudden going to happen and they're only going to happen to you. So if Peter had conquered his fear, no matter what he felt like, no matter what the circumstances or the conditions were around him, talking about the wind or the waves or anything else for that matter, if Peter had conquered his fear, if he had allowed himself to remember things that Jesus had taught them about fear versus faith, if he had realized in that split second, well, of course, the devil's going to try to make me afraid. But that doesn't have anything to do with this. I'm already in experiencing this miracle. Then he could have experienced it all the way to Jesus. And instead of Jesus saying that he had little faith, Jesus would have said that he had great faith. If he had simply conquered fear. I want to look at another example of this. And that's in Numbers chapter 13. Moses sends the 12 spies into the land of Canaan to spy out the land, to find out what was there before they go in and take possession of it. Verse 25, and they returned from searching of the land after 40 days. And, when, and they came and went to Moses and to Aaron and to all the congregation of the children of Israel under the wilderness of Paran to Kadesh and brought back word unto them and unto all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. And they told him and said, we came unto the land whither thou sentest us. And surely it flows with milk and honey, and this is the fruit of it. That was the phrase that God had given Moses to describe the promised land, a land of milk and honey. Verse 28, Nevertheless, the people be strong that dwell in the land, and the cities are walled and very great. And moreover, we saw the children of Anak there. The Amalekites dwell in the land of the south, and the Hittites and the Jebusites and the Amorites dwell in the mountains. And the Canaanites dwell by the sea and, and by the coast of Jordan. And Caleb stilled the people before, before Moses and said, Let us go up at once and possess it, for we are well able to overcome it. But the men that went up with him said, We be not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we. And they brought up an evil report of the land which they had searched unto the children of Israel, saying, The land through which we have gone to search it is a land that eateth up the inhabitants thereof. And all the people we saw in it are men of great stature. And there we saw the giants the sons of Anak which come of the giants and we were in our own sight as grasshoppers and so we were in their sight. Now folks I want you to realize there's not one word spoken about fear but we know that they were afraid because of the things that they saw because chapter 14 tells us it. Chapter 14 verse 1 and all the congregation lifted up their voice and cried and the people wept that night and all the children of Israel murmured against Moses and against Aaron 
And the whole congregation said unto them, Would God that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would God we had died in this wilderness? And wherefore has the Lord brought us unto this land to fall by the sword that our wives and our children should be a prey? Were it not better for us to return to Egypt? And they said one to another, Let us make us a captain and let us return into Egypt. Then Moses and Aaron fell on their faces before all the assembly of the congregation of the children of Israel. And Joshua the son of Nun and Caleb the son of Jephunneh, which were of them that searched the land, rent their clothes. And they spake unto all the company of the children of Israel, saying, The land which we pass through to search it is an exceeding good land. If the Lord delight in us, then he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land which flows with milk and honey. Now, folks, it would be real easy to, to understand, and they should understand, that God does delight in them because he brought them through the Red Sea by parting the waters. They came through on dry land, and Pharaoh's armies were killed when they chased after them. That should be a pretty good indication that God's on their side, shouldn't it? If the Lord delight in us, then he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land that flows with milk and honey. Verse 9, Only rebel ye not against the Lord, neither fear ye the people of the land. There's two things at work here. One is God said that the promised land was theirs. He said, I have given you the promised land. So the first thing that Joshua makes mention of, he says, don't fear, uh, don't rebel against the Lord. The second thing that he talks about is concerning fear of the people in the land. Don't fear them, for they are bred for us. Their defense is departed from them, and the Lord is with us. Fear them not. Well, we saw in the previous chapter that there wasn't anything said about fear, but they did talk about the walls around the cities and the strength of the armies of the people in, those land, in the promised land. So Joshua identifies, don't fear them. Don't be afraid of them. We don't have to be afraid of them. Yeah, they have walls around their cities, but God's bigger than a wall. He was bigger than Pharaoh's army just a couple of years before on their behalf. So he says, don't rebel against the Lord. Don't turn your back on the word. Don't act contrary to what God has promised us. And don't be afraid of the people, for they are bred for us. Their defense is departed from them, and the Lord is with us. Fear them not. But all the congregation bade stone them with stones. And the glory of the Lord appeared in the tabernacle of the congregation before all the children of Israel. I want to skip down. I don't want to read the whole thing for uh, sake of time. But let's skip down to verse 21. God says to Moses as uh, instruction for the people, As truly as I live, all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord. Because all those men which have seen my glory and my miracles, he's talking about the miracles uh, that took place in Egypt to cause Pharaoh to let him go. Because these men which have seen my glory and my miracles which I did in Egypt and in the wilderness and have tempted me now these ten times and have not hearkened to my voice, surely they shall not see the land which I swear unto their fathers, neither shall any of them that provoked me see it. But my servant Caleb, because he had another spirit with him, and has followed me fully, him will I bring into the land whereunto he went, and his seed shall possess it. Now, Caleb saw the same thing. Joshua is included in this as well. Joshua becomes the leader uh, of the children of Israel after Moses dies, 40 years later. But Caleb sees the same thing. Joshua sees the same thing that the others saw. 
They saw the walls. They didn't come back denying that the walls were there. They didn't come back denying the strength of their armies. They didn't come back saying there's, uh, there's not really more of them than are, uh, of us. They didn't deny any of those facts. But they, didn't let it, they did not let the facts cause them to fear. They didn't let the facts influence them in their action. They had their loins girt about with truth. They knew the truth was that God said the land was theirs. And so no matter what, no matter how big the walls are around the cities, no matter how many people there are, no matter how big their armies are or how strong their armies are, the land belongs to them according to God. That's the truth that they used as a shield, as a defense from the fear that, was, that uh, tried to come on them just like the other ten. They weren't immune to the, uh, uh, the fear that the, or the thoughts that what they saw brought to them. But they didn't allow it to stop them. Just like Peter. When Peter saw the wind boisterous, he had a choice. He could keep going to Jesus. He could keep in the, uh, acting on the same thing that he had acted on up to that point. Or he could yield to fear. Caleb and Joshua are saying, don't fear the people. God's on our side. Moses winds up getting the message from God in verse 28. The Lord said to Moses, say unto them, as truly as I live, saith the Lord, as you have spoken in my ears, so will I do unto you. As you have spoken in my ears. Now that's the principle of faith that the Bible says in Ephesians chapter 6 is the shield of faith that quenches all the fiery darts of the wicked. It's either act on what you know the word says is true or yield to fear and act under the influence of the devil now I'm sure that most people that operate in fear don't know that that's what they're doing I'm sure they don't set out to act in fear to be influenced by the devil but we have a choice and so here's the eternal law of God that's what it means where God said as truly as I live how does God live he lives un eternally and he lives in an unchanging manner. So the eternal unchanging law of God is very simply this. As we have spoken in God's ears, so will he do unto us. In other words, he will reward us. He will bless us. He will benefit us according to the faith that we exercise. Faith is the only thing that is necessary to receive from God. And because it's the receiver, faith is the receiver. It's the only thing that can please God. Because here God, in this example, God provided a promised land to the children of Israel. His intention was for them to take it, take possession of it. It was his will that they take possession of it when they first got there in Numbers chapter 13. It wasn't the will of God for them to spend 40 years in the wilderness. It was the will of God for them to obey his commands, seek his help, and take possession of the promised land. They changed that. And the reason they changed it was because of fear. They let the things that they saw bring them to a conclusion that they were unable to take possession of the land. Well, the truth was the land was already theirs. So God says to Moses, Say unto the people, As truly as I live, saith the Lord, as you have spoken in my ears, so will I do unto you. The third example I want you to see is over in Mark chapter 5. Mark chapter 5 tells us that during a certain time, well, I'll just start reading it. 
Let's start reading in verse 21. And when Jesus was passed over again by ship unto the other side, much people gathered unto him, and he was nigh unto the sea. And behold, there came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name. And when he saw him, he fell at his feet and besought him greatly, saying, My little daughter lieth at the point of death. I pray thee, come and lay thy hands on her, that she may be healed, and she shall live. And Jesus went with him, and much people followed him and thronged him. And a certain woman, which had an issue of blood twelve years, and had suffered many things of many physicians, and had spent all that she had, and was nothing better, but rather grew worse. When she had heard of Jesus, came in the press behind and touched his garment. For she said, If I may touch but his clothes, I shall be whole. And straightway the fountain of her blood was dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of that plague. And Jesus, immediately knowing in himself that virtue or power had gone out of him, turned him about in the press and said, Who touched my clothes? And his disciples said unto him, Thou seest the multitude thronging thee, and sayest thou who touched me? And he looked round about to see her that had done this thing. But the woman, fearing and trembling, knowing what was done in her, came and fell down before him and told him all the truth. And he said unto her, Daughter, thy faith has made thee whole. Go in peace and be whole of thy plague. Now, folks, this is uh, kind of a sideline from the things that I want to point out in this story. But please notice that Jesus identified her faith. Your faith has made you whole. Well, what do we know about faith? Faith is believing in the heart and saying with the mouth. So we see what took place in verse 27. When she had heard of Jesus, she came in the press behind and touched his garment. For she said, if I may touch but his clothes, I shall be whole. When she had heard of Jesus, came in the press behind. She took action based on what she heard. Romans 10, 17 says, So then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word. So when she heard of Jesus, it sparked fear. I'm sorry, it sparked faith in her heart. And so she spoke in line with what she believed. She said, If I may touch but his clothes, I shall be whole. Jesus said that was her faith speaking. But let me ask you a question, folks. When Jesus realizes that power or virtue had gone out of him, he looks round about to see her that had done this thing. Notice verse 33. The woman, fearing and trembling, fearing and trembling, knowing what was done in her, came and fell down before him and told him all the truth. Why is she afraid now that she's healed? When it says she was fearing and trembling, that means that even though her action of faith, she heard of Jesus, she took action, for she said, if I may touch but his clothes, I shall be whole. Then she comes in the press behind. She doesn't just start fearing and trembling when she's healed. She's had to do something about what she's heard to make it hers and make it personal. She hears of Jesus, and she identifies that what she's heard of Jesus, which had to be people being healed by touching him or touching his garment, that's what she had faith for. If she had heard about Jesus speaking the word to people and healing them that way, then she wouldn't have had faith to touch the hem of his garment. She might have put herself into a, uh, a, the multitude and tried to follow Jesus around hoping that he would speak something to her. But what she had faith for had to be the result of what she heard. So she had to have heard that people were being healed by touching Jesus, maybe even just touching his garment. So she acted on that. How did she feel when she was acting on that? She had a, a, an unclean disease. This issue of blood, 12 years, is just as unclean as far as the law of Moses is concerned as leprosy is. 
And so because she had this uh, flowing wound, she would have been in a, a situation, this would have been a, a condition of great communicability. It would have been something that would have been considered contagious by the law of Moses. If she was found out, just as if a leper came into a crowd without crying out and identifying that he was there, then the people could have, according to the law of Moses, legally stoned him. She could have been legally stoned if, they find, if anybody finds out what she's doing. So there were a lot of things for her to be afraid of, a lot of opportunities for her to be afraid. But no matter what she felt, she acted on what she heard. So when Jesus stops and knows something is, has taken place, she falls down before him. She's still fearing and trembling. She had to make this personal. In other words, just like the Bible says that we read in Ephesians chapter 6, having done all to stand, stand. Having done all to stand, stand. We might say it this way, having done all to believe, believe. Having done all to believe. Well, what is doing all you can to believe? Hearing the truth of God's word on the subject. Whatever we're facing, what does the word of God say? Folks, we've been, in the last several weeks, we've been in a situation where extreme projections were made about people being sick and people dying, the number of people that would be sick, the number of people that would die. The whole lockdown was to, uh, so that the, the healthcare system wouldn't be overloaded because there were going to be so many people that were sick and so many people that are going to be in the ICU and hospitals. That's why all the lockdown took place, because somebody was trying to keep from over, uh, overwhelming the system, the medical system, the health care system. Well, what makes us think the health care system was going to be overloaded? We heard projections that created fear in the hearts of the people. Now we've got a little bit more experience. Here we are eight or nine weeks down the way, and we've got enough experience to see that it wasn't as severe as what everybody said that it was going to be or what the, uh, the spokesman for the medical community said that it was going to be. It wasn't as difficult. It wasn't as overwhelming. And so a lot of the things that people were afraid of were unfounded. Those fears were unfounded. Well, we had an advantage over the people that didn't know. Our advantage was Jesus took our infirmities and bore our sicknesses, and with his stripes we are healed. No matter what the healthcare system does, no matter how many people get sick, no matter how many people die, it's a tragedy that people died from this thing, but no matter what that number is, we can know by the truth of God's word that healing belongs to us. So we don't have to yield to fear. It was disappointing to see how many Christians were afraid just like non-believers because we certainly didn't have anything to be afraid of. God was on our side. Jesus had already paid the price, and so we were in the clear. And when we have our loins girt about with truth like that, when we know who we are as the righteousness of God, when we put on our feet the gospel of peace, when we take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit and the shield of faith to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked, we don't have to operate in the fear that the world does. We can change that default setting from fear to faith by renewing our minds to the truth of the word. So here's this woman with the issue of blood. No matter what she felt, as long as she keeps coming to Jesus, no matter how many setbacks she has, there may have been times where she was getting close to where Jesus was and got pushed by the crowd out of the way. Whatever of, of those things or whatever circumstances took place, she didn't give up. 
She kept going until she finally touched Jesus. And as soon as she did, just like she believed, healing became hers. So Jesus says, daughter, thy faith has made thee whole. Go in peace and be whole of thy plague. Now I want to get back to the story of Jairus. This is a real purpose for using this example. Verse 35, while he yet spake, there came from the ruler of the synagogue's house certain which said, thy daughter is dead. Why troublest thou the master any further? As soon as Jesus heard the word that was spoken, he said unto the ruler of the synagogue, be not afraid, only believe. Now, folks, let me read that to you again. After the report comes back that the Jairus' daughter is dead, as soon as Jesus heard the word that was spoken, please notice that Jesus took action based on what he heard. Jesus took action based on the change in the circumstances. And notice what he said. He says to Jairus, be not afraid, only believe. He doesn't talk to him about her being raised from the dead. He doesn't say, oh, no, she's not really dead after all. He doesn't make excuses or try to use any kind of trickery on his part in any way whatsoever. He addresses the one thing that has to be conquered, and that's fear. He says, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. If you can conquer the fear, you can conquer the, the, the disease and the result thereof. This is a spiritual battle. Jesus doesn't say, well, let's hurry. Maybe we can put together some medicine real quick when we get there, and maybe it won't be too late. It's a spiritual battle. It's a matter of conquering fear. If we can conquer fear, we can conquer everything the devil has because it's the only road that he travels down. The fear associated with the, the deception is the only weapon that he has against us. And thank God God was faithful. The Holy Ghost was faithful to show us the way that he works. So he says, be not afraid, only believe. We know what happens. They go end up getting to Jairus' house, and Jesus raises his daughter from the dead. So what, did, what took place for the father? Can you imagine the father not being afraid if it was you? If you were in that situation, can you imagine any circumstance, anything related to what's going on, that there wouldn't be fear attached to it? Jesus isn't saying don't feel fear. Jesus is not saying now if you feel fear, it's too late. We can't do anything to help you. He's not talking about a feeling of strength versus fear, of strength versus weakness. He's not talking about what he feels. He's saying don't let fear influence your actions. Don't let fear change what you believed in to begin with. Maintain your same attitude of faith. Now, we don't see him saying anything else for the entirety of the journey. I think that's instructive. Where he says, don't be afraid, in Jairus' case, it just simply meant he didn't say anything else about the situation. He didn't talk about the change in his daughter's condition. He didn't ask if the mother was there with her when she died. He didn't ask anything about anything he conquered fear by keeping his mouth shut because he's already spoken the words of faith. He said to Jesus, come down and lay your hands on my daughter that she'll live and not die. Well, that would seem to be too late because the report has come back that she's dead. Jesus says, conquer fear and everything will turn out fine. And that's apparently what he did because they went down to Jairus' house. Jesus put everybody out. He laid hands on her. 
she was raised from the dead and he gave her something. He told her, told her parents to give her something to eat. Now I want you to see another example of something, folks. I'm going to turn back to Daniel chapter 3. Daniel chapter 3, it tells us about, in the third chapter, it tells us about how Nebuchadnezzar, who was the most powerful king on the face of the earth at that time, some might argue that he, his kingdom was greater than any other kingdom at any other point in time. I don't know about that for sure, but anyway, he built this, this uh, almost 100-foot statue of himself, and he determined that at different times of the day, when the music would sound, that all the people in his kingdom would bow down and worship his statue. He also in, uh, instituted that anybody that failed to do so, failed to fall down and worship his, his image, would be cast into the fiery furnace. So it says, beginning in verse 8, Wherefore at that time certain Chaldeans, wherefore at that time certain Chaldeans came near and accused the Jews. They had a snitch line back then too. They spake and said to the king, Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. Thou, O king, hast made a decree that every man that shall hear the sound of the cornet, flute, harp, sackbut, psaltery, and dulcimer, and all kinds of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoso falleth not down and worshipeth, he that, that he should be cast into the midst of the burning fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom thou hast set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, these three, these men, O king, have not regarded thee, that they serve not thy gods, nor worship the golden image which thou hast set up. Now, folks, I want you to remember something about these three Hebrew children. They, along with Daniel, asked the, the prince of the eunuchs to give them food that didn't violate their conscience according to the law of Moses. And you remember that after 10 days, he finally talked the prince of the eunuch into doing it. After 10 days, they looked fairer and fatter and healthier than the others did. So he wound up giving that to them all the time. And as a result, it says in Daniel chapter 1, verse 17, as for these four children, these three in, in uh, uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in Daniel, as for these four children, God gave them knowledge and skill in all learning and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. And then it tells us in verse 20, And in all matters of wisdom and understanding that the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and astrologers that were in all of his realm. So he knows these guys. He knows who they are. He knows their, the wisdom that they operate in. And so when he hears through the snitch line, that these three Hebrew children are not worshiping his image. Back to Daniel chapter 3, verse 13. Then Nebuchadnezzar in his rage and fury commanded to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Then they brought these men before the king. He's mad. He hears that somebody has defied him, and he's mad. So he brings them before him. Nebuchadnezzar spoke and said unto them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Do you not serve my gods nor worship the golden image which I have set up? Now if you be ready at that time that you hear the sound of the cornet, flute, harp, sackbut, psaltery, and dulcimer, and all kinds of music, if you fall down and worship the image which I have made, then well. We'll count this as a, a, an, a closed situation. We'll just ignore what's happened before. 
But if you worship not, you shall be cast the same hour into the midst of a burning fiery furnace. And who is that God that shall deliver you out of my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we are not careful to answer thee in this matter. Now, I want you to notice that phrase, we are not careful to answer thee in this matter. Most other translations say we have no need to answer you. But that doesn't make sense. So what does it mean when it says we, we're careful or we are not careful to answer thee in this matter? It means that they've already determined ahead of time what they're going to do. Remember again in, in Ephesians chapter 6, having done all to stand, stand therefore. I think a lot of people make mistakes because they wait to get in the middle of situations and then try to figure out how they're going to handle it. But the real benefit of having the word of God, the truth of God's word, and the, the technology that we have so that we can listen to things online and recordings and, and, and so forth in a variety of ways, I think one of the real benefits there is it enables us to put the word of God into our hearts before we ever face certain situations, before we ever face certain crises. And they have already determined, they knew what Nebuchadnezzar's edict was. They knew that if they were found out, they would be called before the king. And they determined ahead of time, they must have talked it through. They determined ahead of time, what are we going to do if this takes place? Surely there are people, they, knew, they must have known that there were people that would try to rat them out. And so if that happens, what are we going to do? They've already made their determination. They're not going to yield or bow down to worship Nebuchadnezzar's image no matter what. So they said, we are not careful to answer thee in this matter. If it be so, verse, 13, uh, verse 17, if it be so, if what be so? Well, Nebuchadnezzar's the only one that's put a conditional response upon them or spoken to a conditional response. He said, if you fall down at the time of worship and worship the image, then we'll just let the past go and start all over. But if you don't worship, if you don't fall down and worship, I will cast you in the burning fiery furnace. And his question is, who is that God that shall deliver you out of my hands? So they turn it around. They say, if you do, if you do throw us into the burning fiery furnace, the God that you asked who would deliver us, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace and he will deliver us out of thine hand. But if not, now this doesn't mean if God doesn't, save them or deliver them when it says if not it means if you don't throw us in be it known unto thee O king that we will not serve thy gods nor worship the golden image which thou hast set up then was Nebuchadnezzar full of fury and the form of his visage was changed against Shadrach Meshach and Abednego therefore he spoke and commanded that they should heat the furnace one seven times more than it was wont to be heated now folks I want you to realize something if they're saying, if you throw us in, if the three Hebrew children are saying to Nebuchadnezzar, if you throw us in, we believe God's able to deliver us. But if he doesn't deliver us, be it known unto you that we're still not going to worship your image. Well, if he doesn't deliver them, they're going to be burned up. So that wouldn't make sense. And if that was what was being said, then Nebuchadnezzar would have very simply said, no reason for him to get upset. He would have just very simply said, well, okay, let's throw you in and see how it goes. Let's see if your God will deliver you. But the if that the three Hebrew children are talking about is whether he throws them into the furnace or not. If he throws them into the furnace, God will deliver them. If he doesn't throw them into the furnace, they're still not going to worship his image. Well, now they're defying 
the king. And that's why Nebuchadnezzar's rage was full of fury. And the form of his visage was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He went into a, an absolute rage. Because you don't define the king like that. Nobody tells the king. A person in as powerful position as he was. You don't tell the king that, something like that. So he commanded that the fire, fiery furnace be hot, heated up seven times hotter than ever before. And he commanded the most mighty men that were in his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them into the burning fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their coats, their hosen, and their hats, and their other garments, and were cast into the midst of the burning fiery furnace. Therefore, because the king's commandment was urgent and the furnace exceeding hot, the flame of the fire slew those men that took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Nothing wrong with the fire. It killed the guys that were throwing them in. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell down bound into the midst of the burning fiery furnace. Then Nebuchadnezzar the king was astonished and rose up in haste and spake and said unto his counselors, Did not we cast three men bound into the midst of the fire? And they answered and said unto the king, True, O king. And he answered and said, Lo, I see four men loose. Must have been some way he could look down into the middle of this thing. He said, I see four men loose walking in the midst of the fire, and they have no hurt. And the form of the fourth is like the Son of God. Now, I don't know what made him look different than the other three, but it was something that Nebuchadnezzar sure took notice of. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the mouth of the burning fiery furnace and spake and said, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, you servants of the Most High God, come forth and come hither. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came forth in the midst of the fire. He's not full of fury anymore, is he? He's not enraged and his visage changed like it was before. He's seen something that's greater and more powerful than anything that he's ever experienced. And the princes and the governors and the captains and the king's counselors being gathered together saw these men upon whose bodies the fire had no power. Now, folks, if God has done things and the Bible tells us about how God has delivered people from fire, how much more can we expect him through the name of Jesus and the sacrifice of Jesus for sickness and disease and viruses and so forth not to have any power upon our bodies? The king's counselors and all these princes and captains gathered together and saw these men, these three Hebrew children who are grown up a little bit now, upon whose bodies the fire had no power, nor was a hair of their heads singed, Neither were their coats changed, nor the smell of fire had passed on them. Then Nebuchadnezzar spoke and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants that trusted in him, and have changed the king's word and yielded their bodies that they might not serve any, any that they might not serve nor worship any god except their own god. Therefore I make a decree that every people, nation, and language which speak anything against, amiss against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be cut in pieces and their houses shall be made a dunghill because there is no other God that can deliver after this sort. Notice it doesn't even talk about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It doesn't even talk about the God of Israel. Nebuchadnezzar has found out this is the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. Folks, we are in a situation more than ever before in our lifetimes, more than ever before 
maybe even up until the point where Jesus comes back for the church, where we have an opportunity to show that God is our God. Not just that God is God. Not just that God is the God of the Old Testament. But that God is our God. Let me close with Hebrews chapter 13. Verse 5. It says, let your conversation, meaning manner of life, be without covetousness. And be content with such things as you have. For he has said, I will never leave thee no more, nor forsake thee. So that we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper and I will not fear what man shall do unto me. Let me ask you a question. Maybe I should have asked this before I read Hebrews 13. But let me ask you this. How does Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego come to the place where they do not fear the furnace? What did they do to develop a faith in their heart, a spiritual strength that held them steady when they were in the presence of the king? Now, it's one thing when they're by themselves. A lot of people, when they're on their own, they'll talk big. They'll talk about what they're going to do and how they're going to trust God and what all God's going to do and how he's going to bring forth things into their life. But when they got before Nebuchadnezzar, who had the power to throw him into the furnace, who had the power to sentence them to death, what did they do? How did they operate in such a way that they had this strength of character, this spiritual strength, this faith that overcame and conquered fear? You know, there's a lot of stories throughout church history of the first generation of the church and the great persecution, the different waves of persecution, I guess I should say, that came against the Christians. And whereas it was an honor and a lot of people operated in miraculous ways to sacrifice their lives as martyrs for the cause of Christ, there were also a lot of people that came up to the edge of it and when they faced death with their own eyes, they turned away from God. There were stories of, of believers that denied Christ. And as a result, they took their own lives at, at later points in time. Because they were afraid, they let fear dominate them and keep them from having a good testimony when they faced death. What was it that put Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in a place where they believed that God was with them, that he would never leave them nor forsake them, and deliver them from the king's wrath? Well, Paul tells us, if Paul's the author of Hebrews, I believe he is, Paul tells us something. Paul says, be content with such things as you have, for he has said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. Notice verse 6, so that we may boldly say, that we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper, and I will not fear what man shall do unto me. Paul was in a situation where he faced magistrates and governors, even went before Caesar's throne, before the end of his life. Paul's telling us something about himself. He's telling us that he confessed that he did not fear what man would do. One thing I found 
in walking with the Lord for as many years as I have, one of the things that I've found is just like the, the mind has a default position or setting to not be renewed, to be unrenewed. I, I, that's a difficult way to say that, I guess, but I hope you know what I'm trying to say. If we're going to renew our minds, we're going to have to do something to, to, um, to buck the crowd. We're going to have to do something that a lot of people won't understand. We're going to have to do something, take the Word of God, speak it into our own heart, meditate on the Word. We're going to have to take those steps to put the Word of God into our spirit and to train our minds to think in line with what the Word says instead of how we see and feel and the way everybody else in the world operates. In the same way, fear is a default position too. It's a default setting. And if you're going to overcome fear, you're going to have to declare that fear is overcome. Now, there's a lot of different things that the devil will try to use fear to make you, uh, to influence your life. He'll try to make you afraid of sickness. He'll try to make you afraid of poverty. He'll try to make you aware, or afraid of God's judgment. If you don't know who you are in Christ and you don't know God's attitude and his love for you. There's a lot of things that the devil will try to use fear to conquer you or to direct you or to, to influence your life, to deceive you. But I found the things that I become the strongest in are the areas of fear that I begin to confess that I'm not afraid. One of the greatest things that you can use your, the belief in your heart and the confession of your mouth toward is to conquer fear. The more you speak about not being afraid of sickness, the less hold fear has upon you in the area of sickness and disease. The more you speak about God's plan for your well-being, your financial well-being. You may remember Psalm 35, verse 27. Let them say continually, the Lord has pleasure in the prosperity of his servant. Why do we need to say that continually? Because the more we say it, the more fear loses its hold on us. Fear of poverty loses its hold on us. The more you speak of being the righteousness of God, the more you speak of not being afraid of God's judgment, then the stronger you become in righteousness. Whatever fears the devil uses to attack you or to try to hold you back, to influence you, find what the Word of God says in that subject and begin to say it. There's a verse of Scripture in Isaiah that says, Oppression shall be far from you. You'll be established in righteousness, and oppression shall be far from you because you do not fear. Again, it's the same principle. If we conquer fear, we can conquer every attack and every work of the devil against us. So begin to say, here's how Paul ends up. Be content with such things as you have, for God has said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee, so that we may boldly say, boldly say, boldly say, not fearfully say, boldly say, the Lord is my helper, and I will not fear what man will do unto me. Folks, we don't have anything to be afraid of. We live in a time that I believe is going to be the most glorious in all of the world history of the church. We can expect God to do great things, perform miracles for us, just like he performed miracles for the early days, in the early days of the church, because the name of Jesus is just as strong as it ever was. 
we have an opportunity to manifest the glory of God and to experience it for ourselves. But it's going to take boldness on our part. It's going to take us standing up and stepping out and acting on what God's Word says belongs to us. Let's pray. Father, we bless you. We magnify your holy name. We declare, Father, because your word says so, that Jesus took our infirmities and bore our sicknesses, and with his stripes we are healed. So we declare that healing is ours. We refuse to be afraid of sickness and disease because just as the three Hebrew children, fire had no power on their bodies, sickness and disease has no power against us. It has no power in our bodies. We don't deny the presence of sickness. We deny its right to affect our, and have any power over our flesh. We thank you, Father, that whoever we stand before, you give us words to speak. We don't have to be afraid of being without words, the right words to say, because the Holy Ghost is our helper. He'll strengthen us. We're not afraid of weakness, for you are our strength. We're not afraid of weakness, because your strength is ours. We thank you, Father, that you do delight in the prosperity of your servants. You delight in our prosperity. You delight in our financial victory. You delight in our healing of sickness and disease. You delight in our righteousness that was paid for by the precious blood of Jesus. Now, Father, we thank you for strengthening us, giving us wisdom to seek out and to find others that need help, others that need to find the peace of God because their lives are in upheaval and in turmoil. We thank you, Father, that the power in the name of Jesus is greater than any power, any force, any work of the devil. And as such, we are more than conquerors because of your love for us. We bless you, Father. We thank you for leading us and guiding us by the Holy Spirit and seeing us through to victory in every aspect of our lives. In Jesus' precious name, amen.